we are not just launching a new magazine. The magazine is the product, but behind that product is an entire business, and that's the big challenge for us. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Unless you've spent the last decade living off the grid, you would have to notice the rapid decline in the number of bookstores in the U.S. According to Ibis World, in 2012, there were more than 22,000 booksellers, but today there are only a little more than 13,000. Either we're not reading like we once did, or more likely we have found online sellers to be more convenient. Our guests today are Jason Boyad and Michelle McCaffrey, co-publishers of Brick and Elm Magazine in Amarillo. In spite of macro changes afoot, spring of 2021 found the two of you launching a new company, Edgebow Media, and your new magazine. But magazines depend in large part on bookstores and newsstands for sales, in addition to regular subscriptions. Stir in the fact that Brick and Elm is a hyper-local publication, and some might say that you are salmoning against the current. How did this all come to be, and why were you willing to take a huge risk, especially while still in a pandemic, to start a niche publication? Well, I think we realized at the beginning um, that we were taking a risk and that this was, in terms of the larger story, uh, we, were, we were telling a little bit different story. I mean, the larger story is that print magazines are dying. Print as a whole is, is dying. Uh, and, and that goes back to the, the facts that you stated. Um, but that's, that's a story about the United States. That's a story about Western culture, maybe. It's not necessarily a story about Amarillo. And, and I think that there are a lot of unique elements of Amarillo, the marketplace, the people who live here, that allowed us to see that while print may be dying, it's not dead yet. Uh, and it's not something necessarily that we think is going to go away forever. And we found in this market, because we had experience in this market, that we thought print could thrive, especially when it was combined with some of the other things that we know we do well. Uh, and, and so, yeah, salmoning against the current, that's, mm. that's, a, that's a fun phrase. I feel like we are doing that, but I think we are doing that intentionally, not because we don't understand. I, I think we see, and we see a market, and we're, we're heading towards that market. And how about you, Michelle? And I, I think that the surrounding, Amarillo and the surrounding area deserve a quality publication. Our desire is to um, keep people engaged. They need that community buy-in, and when they don't have that, they don't volunteer, they don't celebrate where they live. Um, in all of my experience in publishing, uh, people tend to be apologetic about Amarillo and talk down about it, but there's so much talent here um, and so many good stories to tell. Everybody has a story, and so um, and we know how to do that, and and in a in a beautiful, quality, keepable publication. So, both of you have long Amarillo pedigrees. Um, you graduated from local high schools, Michelle. You went to Amarillo College, and Jason. I know you graduated here from WT. What's your story, not just about how and why you're here, but more importantly, why you stayed? I stayed um, because I had a child and 
it, it just, it, it, it's interesting because my background, uh, my parents weren't from here and um, they were very focused on their backgrounds and their hometowns, not Amarillo. So it's interesting to me that I do what I do now and that I stayed and that I I'm so involved in Amarillo because they just, they really weren't. But um, it was just life choices that I made. And it, it is, a, despite what, what, you know, when people want to talk badly about Amarillo, it's, an, it's a very easy place to be. We, we have, for the majority of people have very good, easy, convenient lives. It's a, it's a very good place to be. And Jason, what about you? I think a lot of people stay out of inertia because it's easy. Um, and that's, that's fine. I think in my case, I stayed because I chose to stay. And I, I was in a position where I had opportunities to go to other places and t- take jobs, you know, in, in different markets. And I always decided that what I might gain by moving to another market didn't always balance against what I would lose by leaving Amarillo. And, and the things that I would lose would be the proximity to my family. You know, my parents lived here. My wife's parents lived here. My brother and his family lived here. I, I saw the future of my kids being able to grow up with their grandparents and with their cousins and, and having that family atmosphere. So that was important to me. And, and I, you know, making a better income in Florida or someplace like that would have been great for me but maybe not for my kids, maybe not for my family. And so that was part of it. I, I think the cost of living part that Michelle alluded to is another big element of it because I've been a, a self-employed freelance writer for 15 years. And living in Amarillo, I've been able to enjoy a pretty nice quality of life. Had I lived in San Francisco during that time, I would be living in poverty. And so... The fact that I could do what I was doing here, uh, could could be comfortable here, could be around my family, and could have access to all the stuff that I love, the stuff that I value, um, that that made that a, a pretty easy decision. I, I've never looked back and thought, man, I should have moved away. Uh, I've always been pretty glad that I chose the life that we had here, because I don't think we're missing anything. The cost of living is a huge factor. Um, we all just you know, recently this year got a big wake-up call with our uh, new property appraisals and mm-hmm. estimated tax bills, and suddenly we find ourselves in the real world <laughs> uh, with really expensive houses. But the benefit is we've all been here a while. We bought right. in when it was really cheap, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that so much. And I, I continue to hear stories, you know, from our advertisers, from some of our community partners about the people who are moving here, and they're moving here from places like California or from places like Austin uh, because they see that, number one, it's still fairly cheap to live in Amarillo, especially if you're working remotely. Uh, and number two, like there's zero commute. And if it takes you 15 minutes to get anywhere in town, like it's annoying because that means there's a traffic problem or there's construction or something like that. And, and those are quality of life things that I think people, because of the pandemic, are starting to realize, hey, that, that's something I didn't think about. And losing an hour and a half of my day because I'm in my car going to and from work is not worth it anymore. And, and I think it, a lot of people realize that. And so I, I hear stories about people that own co-working spaces and, and things like that, that, that people are moving here and they need an office. 
because they've left their other office in some other city. But like that's all they need. In Amarillo, they've got everything else. Your journalism and writing bona fides are a mile long, each of you. And, and I've been consuming your works for years, back with another Amarillo publication and Jason with all your books and features at Relevant Magazine, Texas Highways, and of course your top drawer podcast, Hey Amarillo. How many episodes are you up to now? Nearly 250. Wow, that that's great. And, and I can't uh, encourage our listeners here to give Jason a listen too. How did these prepare you for taking the helm of your own media outlet, though? I mean, after all, freelancing and being on staff for one thing, but suddenly having to corral a bunch of independent writers yourself, along with photographers, that's quite another. Well, I'll speak for me first, because I, I know that Michelle has much more experience with the corralling of independent writers and photographers than I do. I, I come at it from the freelance side. And so I have been writing freelance for magazines nationally and regionally and, and locally, you know, for 20, 25 years at this point. And so I've only seen one side of that. I get assigned a story, I write the story, I send it off, and then we do some edits, and then it shows up in this beautiful, you know, printed publication or on a website or whatever. Uh, and so th this aspect is pretty new to me, to where we are not only assigning all the content, making all the content happen, but we're like designing it and we're figuring out what the content should be and which articles are we going to uh, assign and what should that look like when we design it. And so all of that stuff is new to me. I'm, I've, I've worked on magazines before as a freelancer. I've designed magazines. I've created newsletters. I've done all different elements of this individually, but this is my first time to like package all that together. Now, Michelle has been doing this for much longer with another publication. And so I think what's new for her, and she can answer this, but what's new for her is that she's in charge now and not having to get permission from anybody else for all of the ideas that she has. And that that's a lot of fun for me to just see that play out. Yeah, the freelance model is something that I'm used to, so that's not new. Um, in in my past life, that is, that's all I had. And, and complete autonomy, too. Very little oversight. And so um, the freelance model I, I prefer. Uh, it's easier for easier for me than having staff. Uh, the, the part that's new to me is, like Jason said at the very beginning, the starting of an, an entire business. So there were so many facets of magazine publishing that I was not involved in because of corporate structure and, and corporate silos and departments and directors. Um, you know, in publishing, it's kind of a brutal industry and territorial personalities and that kind of thing. So distribution, um, the cost of paper, uh, all all of the the million things put the, the U.S. Postal Service, <laughs> all of it is so challenging. Managing uh, subscriptions, yes, and payments, all of that new to all of it, and so it's been exciting and challenging, and the hardest thing I've ever done. And you get it actually printed locally, don't you? Locally, as in Lubbock, at this point. Okay. Um, there is not really a printer that's big enough here to handle the job. Uh, the magazine is too, too thick um, for a perfect bound to be printed here is not affordable at this point. Or uh, the local printers don't have perfect binders that can handle our, the size of our print order and the size of the magazine with the paper that we use. So, Our struggles um, with printing in... 2021 and 2022 are worth their own podcast. Yes. It's, it's been a huge challenge. Yeah. And what's your circulation? We, uh, we're up to around 
two thousand in a in a print order, two to three thousand in a print order. Um, we sell more retail than we do um, subscribers, and then we have about three thousand or so people that read the online version. So it it this it is strongest digitally. Your scope is necessarily very limited. Uh, Amarillo itself has only about two hundred thousand residents, and the metro area, which I know makes me sound so big city here, is about 275,000 tops. That's a pretty small target in the grand scheme of things. And yet city and regional magazines are everywhere. I mean, everywhere you go, you will find at least one city magazine in that city and state magazines and uh, other portions of the state. As much as I love heady national publications that stretch the mind, I actually thrive on magazines that give a sense of place. I buy localized publications everywhere I travel because I crave that local flavor. But I subscribe to yours because I live here. I, w I want more of that flavor six times a year. What is this place of which you write, though? There has to be an essence that defines your raison d'etre. I, I think the, you know, part of the part of the larger story about magazines when you you think of how print is failing often that's like the big national magazines you know entertainment weekly has just gone digital after years and years of being a major print publication but like that's not happening with the the city magazines and the regional magazines like those markets are important because the community doesn't want necessarily to see cadillac ads or to see ads for movies, you know, that are about to show. They want to see their local businesses, and and they want to hear from the retailers and the local restaurants and the local shop owners and the boutiques. Like like that's something that local focus that I think a locally focused magazine like ours can really provide. Uh, and and what we found about Amarillo, and we knew this before we went in uh, with with this project, but. Amarillo is a place that is very, very dedicated to its businesses. I mean, that's part of the story you probably told your students about Krispy Kreme trying to gain a footprint in Amarillo. Or, you know, some of the big restaurants and, and places like that, that that everybody's so excited come here and then everybody gets in line for it for about five weeks and then they just forget about it because we've got so many other great restaurants here. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a local focus in Amarillo that I think is pretty special. And it's part of that that isolation that we have up here, um, where we have had to carve out our own existence on our own terms without help from the bigger cities, which are hours and hours away, or the state, which sometimes forgets about us because we're way up here in the panhandle. Um, we had to do stuff ourselves. And because we have that built-in self-reliance, I think that makes the, the grit and the determination and the pioneer spirit of this area kind of special. Um, and so that's that's something that kind of drives all the stories we tell. And that's why we want to do a, a, a magazine that is not dependent on any outside partners, that, that's local. Uh, our writers are local and, and our photographers are local. And that that love of Amarillo people and support of local businesses, I think, is this, the bigger story that, that kind of drives a lot of what we do. Very much so. Fiercely independent is, is something that I would say about Amarillo people and, and fiercely loyal. Um, it is remarkable to me that there are so many city, quote unquote, quote marks, magazines here run by people that don't live here and don't know the market. And that's part of 
why we do what we do. Because again, we feel like um, our readers and the people of the city deserve better. It, they, they, they often feel in my meetings uh, on sales calls, that kind of thing, that outsiders come in and kind of talk down to them because they don't give Amarillo credit for the depth of um, character of the people, uh, the arts here. Mm-hmm. Art, we've had to, I think, fight for everything that we have. Um, you know, and having worked in Lubbock, I, I saw the difference uh, between the two cities so much so that Amarillo people have really have had to work so hard for everything because it's not just part of a huge university system and automatically there. So um, that's, that is the main reason that we started the magazine because we, um, we, we know how to tell the stories of Amarillo people um, without outside corporate interference. So. And yet you have this local competition which means the small pie you're seeking is sliced into even smaller pieces. What are you doing differently to stand out? Quality, number one. Yeah. Um, the customer service, because we um, we are the ones working the subscription list. That We don't have a call center um, that's talking to customers. We hand deliver magazines to new subscribers. We know most of our subscribers um, either through acquaintances or just having worked with them. Um, We are the only local publication. Uh, We have a a full website, a fully interactive website with an online reader. Um, We have a weekly newsletter. We have access to Jason's podcast. We have um, two people who are free to create, and if we see a need in the market and we feel like we can create a product for an advertiser to help them promote their business, we can do whatever we wish uh, because, again, we don't have a corporate overlord saying, no, we don't do That's not the way that we do that or, no, that won't work here because we don't have to – there's no fear of failure if we can try and launch a new product, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. We are free to create and um, – just deliver a, a really quality product to the city. And I don't, I don't think people, I don't, I don't think residents always know. They, they see a, a neighborhood magazine or they see another magazine that might have, you know, the name Amarillo and its masthead. And if you don't pay attention to the rest of the stuff on that masthead, you might think, oh, here's a, here's a local publication. Well, it's not. You know, a lot of these are owned out of state. The editors do not live here. The printers are not here in Texas. The photographers, they might contract with somebody local. They might not. Um, ad sales is often, you know, there might be a local person doing some of that, but that money is going to another state. And what we've dedicated, you know, this project to doing is that we're going to keep this as local as possible. We're running a very lean operation. Michelle is the publisher of the magazine, and she's also selling ads. And so she's meeting with these retailers and is able, you, you don't have to call some other state to find out, what are the dimensions of this ad? How, how do I deliver this to you? You know, everything is self-contained here. And, and that's, I think, something that, that helps us stand apart um, from the competition. I think in a, maybe a smaller way, I think the excellence of the, the, our commitment to doing it well and to making it beautiful and to telling the story the right way. Um, we've got the best photographers in the city. We've got the best writers in the city. We have the best-looking magazine in the city, and that sounds like egotism, but I, I think it's factually true. What kinds of content do your readers like? Is it just 
seeing their picture in the local magazine or deep dives in long-form journalism about people and places? Deep dives. Yeah, we're, I think we're still kind of experimenting because we're only a year old and we've done a lot of different types of, of articles. But I think at, at least the stuff that really kind of pushes our buttons is to tell the stories that aren't always getting mm-hmm. told. And that requires more than here's who was at this fun event, you know, here's here's your face and a printed product. Okay, that's fine. Some people like that. We want to tell the stories that matter and we want to tell stories that celebrate Amarillo. And so you are not going to find, for instance, our, our cover story uh, for earlier this year was about the individuals in historic black Amarillo who laid the the trails for everybody else who are the influential people in the black community and we told those stories bones hooks and j.o wyatt and professor sc Patton and people like that like i haven't read that story in the newspaper you know Mm -hmm. and and so being able to tell stories like that um i love it and and that's what i want to do about a city because that's what i'm interested in i want to know that story i figure if i want to know that story there's got to be some some readers who want to know that story too and so it's finding a balance uh between telling that story and then doing some of the things we know our readers love and that we know our advertisers love um it's it's creating a product that because it makes enough money to pay for itself gives us the freedom to do the stuff we want to do and to do the stuff that our readers expect and balance all those things together. And I, I think that's where you find success. And Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. The most feedback that I hear is that people sit with it, that, you know, there there might be other, you know, smaller publications or things that are a little bit less weighty that they might flip through uh, looking for people that they know, which has been my experience in the past uh, in my former job, they just flip through and you think, oh, I know them and I know them. And they love seeing local faces and that kind of thing. But with Brick and Elm, always, always when I'm out, that's what I hear, that people save it and sit with it and read it cover to cover. And what kind of person sits down and reads a 2,500 word feature story? Young and old. Mm-hmm. We, we have a much younger following than what, I'm, what I've experienced in the past. Um, We've heard from subscribers mm-hmm. who say this is the first print magazine I've ever subscribed to. And I love hearing that. And we've heard from people uh, my parents' age who said this is the only print magazine I now subscribe to. And I heard from my uh, the guy who sprays my house for, for pests was in my house and he saw Brick and Elm. He's like, I see this magazine on every coffee table I go to in this neighborhood. And I was like, good. That means people are putting it out. People are saving it. People are reading it. It's not just a decoration. It's pretty enough to be a decoration, but like it's it's there's a reason people are, are saving that kind of thing. And you know we see that uh, hear that anecdotally, and we see that in the visits to our website that people are are reading some of these deep dives into Amarillo history, or uh, in our recent issue explaining the the historically low home inventory. I mean, those are not stories that you're going to find in any other publication right now. Maybe it's stuff that the newspaper would have written about 20 or 25 years ago, but not today. Uh, and so we're, we're doing the things that we think are interesting. And um, as long as what we think is interesting matches up with what our readers think is interesting, kind of meets the demand, I, I think we're in a good place. And I, I hear 
from young, young people too. I think millennials longing for that sense of connection to the, the town that they've chosen to live in. Um, even recently, um, eating out at a local restaurant, the bartender heard me speaking to some friends about what I was working on. And she said, you're brick and elm and new. And she knew because of our branding with other local kind of hipstery businesses, but, um, and she was in her young twenties. I'm very encouraged that there are people out there, young and old, that are still willing to read many, many words and paragraphs because we live in an era of 280-character tweets, and um, on Instagram, you've got 2,300 characters, so they're a little more liberal in that regard, but I push that limit frequently on my daily posts, and I, I doubt 10% even read that far. Uh, we're, we're all just so accustomed to short little blurts. And for people to want to sit down and actually read, that is very encouraging. But I, th I think you're seeing a, a little bit of a backlash now to that, uh, even even in social media. I mean, there's a reason Twitter began to make it easier for you to thread tweets, because people were saying, all right, I've got a bigger story to tell than these 144 characters are allowing me to do, or these 280 characters. And, and so... They were doing that already, and Twitter said, okay, we're going to let you do that. And so that's how a lot of people have built their platforms on Twitter is because of the threads that they write. Those are long-form communication. Uh, you're seeing the rise in, in Substack newsletters right now or paid newsletters. Big, big business, and it's people who got tired of the limitations of social media or the 500-word BuzzFeed article that they were allowed to write or whatever they were doing, and they're taking these deep dives, and they're finding out that there's a market for that long-form journalism. And so what we are trying to do is, is do both, uh, have a product that has some short stuff, some stuff that's skimmable, some stuff that you can read through quickly, and then some stuff that you can sit down with and, uh, and, and really just ingest, you know, and, and spend some time with. And uh, the, the, the flexibility to do both of those things, I think, is, uh, is a lot of fun for us. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really freeing for um, for the, the readers that we have. When I see millennials returning to the traditions and lifestyles of their grandparents, that slower life, um, a slower life of quality, you know, a pour over coffee that takes 20 minutes in the morning and handcrafted goods and knitting and they read. I like how you've chosen to use perfect binding as opposed to saddle stitched. That screams quality and keeper in my book because uh, I know how I keep your magazine and others. I, you know, they, they're on my coffee table and then when I've exhausted them, then they go on my shelf and, and they stay there. How and why did you decide to go this route instead of the less expensive path? I couldn't have imagined doing saddle stitch. Um, I, I knew we knew we could more than likely get the page count up, and when you've got a higher page count, um, publishing every other month, you can't staple it. And so we knew that, but the, we always wanted that quality look. I I think there's people may not understand it. Like if, if I were to go out and say, "Well, we have a perfect bound magazine," people would look at me and say, "I don't know what that means," but they know how it feels and they know how it looks and they know enough to pick up a magazine that they're used to reading and thinking, oh, there's not, this magazine is smaller than it used to be. This magazine feels like a, you know, a cheap thing that I got at work for free or that I got while walking out of the grocery store. Uh, and so adding that perfect binding, I think, speaks quality 
in a subconscious way, even if the, the reader or the consumer doesn't know what that means. Uh, and so it was very much an intentional choice based on what, how big we wanted it to be and how we wanted it to feel when you pick it up in your hands. And it was a choice that has had some challenges, like Michelle mentioned earlier. Like That means we have a limited number of places we can print that. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's come with some, uh, some struggles, but I, I think it's worth it. Yeah. Let's talk about content. How do you decide the theme of each issue? And do you ever worry that you might run out of story ideas? Michelle should answer this because she's great at this. Coming up, coming up with ideas? Yeah, and deciding this, this will be a theme of this. I mean, you've been doing this for, yeah. for years and years and years. No, I don't worry about running out of ideas, but it, it just it, it's just watching the city and, and watching current affairs and things that people are interested in and an instinct. I don't know how else I would say it. Um, we do have people who contact us um, with ideas. Uh, it's just the thing, the stories that we want to tell. I don't know how I would say the, that there's a decision involved. I don't know. I, I think a lot of it is intuitive with Very both of much. us. Mm -hmm. The thing that I always think about is after Michelle was freed up from her previous employer and the previous magazine that she worked on to do something new, um, we sat down together to talk about it. And she said, I'm not ready to stop doing this. I keep thinking of story ideas. I keep seeing things and thinking that would be a magazine article. And that told me that, number one, like she can't turn that off. And number two, she wasn't ready to turn that off. And so I don't know that that's something you can necessarily learn. Uh, but if you have it, then you should use it. And I think she's great at that. I think she's great at, at hearing just a comment in an advertising meeting or while shopping in a boutique and thinking, oh, I want to dig into that. And yeah, that turns into a you know 1,500-word feature in our magazine. And I think she could do that all day long. I think we could, we could publish every month and we could continue to tell new stories. Well, you do have 200,000 people here, so... <laughs> you know, and I've been asked that with my podcast. That's not why I'm here to talk about my podcast, but like I started it and people said, are you going to run out of interesting people to interview? And I was like, no. I mean, when I, when I decided I was going to do Hey Amarillo, I wrote out a list of about 150 people that I had access to and that I knew would say yes and that I thought that will be a good podcast interview. I've barely scratched that list five years later because I keep finding new people to talk to. Um, and so there, there are unlimited stories to tell, whether it's in print, whether it's a podcast, however you want to do that. Uh, so I'm, I'm not afraid of, of running out of no. ideas. We're, we're hit with ideas every day. And I, we're both good at connecting people. We, we do a good job of connecting people, of, of meeting one person who, who I know could help another nonprofit, and then that turns into a story. Those kinds of idea sharing and inspiration that we get from the people that we meet. What kinds of challenges did you face in getting local distribution? Oh, gosh. <laughs> first printing. First, we, we were good to go, and then paper disappeared. So uh, the weight of paper, we could no longer find that we had budgeted for. Um, so the, the first hurdle was that cost to print here to keep it local. A lot of supply chain stuff involved in that. Lots and lots. Um, I, I'm, it, 
distribution happened very quickly. Every retail outlet that I wanted, we were able to get really quickly. A lot of it because of the relationships that have been built over more than a decade. So that that part wasn't necessarily a challenge. It, uh, that on was the only a side. challenge in that it, a lot of that happened before we had a product. Yeah, like like that's that's a testament to I think people knowing Michelle and trusting Michelle from her previous work. Um, as soon as she said we're launching a magazine, then people started saying we want to carry your magazine. And that's that's a very Amarillo thing. Like like that's not something we could not have launched a Dallas magazine and gotten into all the Dallas supermarkets or all of the QTs and convenience stores. That would have been a heavy lift. In a place the size of Amarillo, where you can have a positive reputation, where people can trust you and know you, it that was not a challenge. And I, I think that's a reason we've been able to get out in front of as many people in such a quick time, I and mean, we're just a year into this, um, a, a lot of that has to do with the size and the character of the city. Do you have any out-of-town subscribers? And if so, are they former residents or people who have no real connection to the area? We have quite a few out-of-town subscribers. Most of them are connected. Yeah, I, I think there's all. a lot of family members, not just our families, but you know, people who used to live in Amarillo, or the parents or grandparents of people who still live in Amarillo. Um, it, it might be family members of somebody who's advertising in our magazine, and they said, I'm part of this big new magazine. You know, you should get this. And, and people are getting it because they, they want to have that connection to a city that is still part of their lives, even if they don't live here. And then and local, local shoppers. So lots of people from New Mexico that come into Amarillo to shop, subscribe to the magazine. Lots of people in Borger um, subscribe just to, to stay connected to the biggest market close to them. The pandemic has thrown many curveballs at everyone. Uh, one of the most recent problems has been paper shortages along with price increases across the board. How have you two charted those choppy waters? Well, we've alluded to how much of a challenge that has been. And that's the reason that we are on uh, our, our third printer right now, hopefully our last printer um, in <laughs> six issues. Uh, it, a lot of that, because of the supply chain stuff, because of the price increases, because of just the general availability, you have to have the buying power of a large company. Um, and so going with a, a very small local boutique printer, which is what we tried at the beginning, was great in terms of service. It was great in terms of quality. It was very difficult because it's hard to buy the quantity of paper that we needed. And to get it from a supplier that's going to give it to you and not to some giant, you know, print shop in Chicago. And so that that has been one of our biggest struggles. And, and that's why uh, we finally decided that we were going to print uh, with a Lubbock printer because they are bigger than anything else we could access in this area. And they have the buying power uh, to get the paper weight that we need, to get the price point that we need, to do the perfect binding without having to send it out to, to another place. And so that has been a very big issue, one that we hope will, a problem that we hope have, we've solved at this point and that will continue to get better as the supply chain kind of clears out, theoretically. We hope that happens. Uh, but yeah, inflation, availability of paper, all that stuff is, is tough. Very, very expensive. So, that it, you know, there were planned expenses and then very much un, unplanned expenses, and you just have to kind of roll with it and pivot and just that first year of all the mistakes that 
new business owners make and um, just to not get discouraged and keep pushing mm -hmm. past those kinds of things. But it's much more expensive, uh, which is why I always said I would never print a magazine. <laughs> so here I am. It helps that we're a very lean operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have exactly two employees and then a, a few contractors, uh, but we don't have an office. We don't have overhead. Um, you know, we're not driving around a brick and elm vehicle with our logo on it. We're not delivering stuff in big, you know, box trucks or anything like that. Um, that gives us a lot of, of flexibility, the ability to be nimble, to weather some of these hurdles. Uh, there's probably some drawbacks, too. It would be great to have a huge team of people that, that were helping do the work. But uh, we're operating as we can how it works with this economy right now, with the reality. Uh, and it gives us a lot of room to grow. You are obviously an advertising-driven business, and yet during the pandemic, uh, there weren't many businesses around that weren't impacted negatively, uh, unless you're a supermarket or something, because we all needed food. And yet it seems like other businesses, local businesses, all stepped up to the plate somehow to support you at a time when it was tough on everybody. We, in our first our first sales blitz to la launch the magazine, I actually, most of the feedback that I got was that it was the best year they'd ever had. So in Amarillo, um, that, that hyper-local support that we've talked about, um, most businesses, um, restaurants, of course, were very, were hit very hard, but most businesses had some of the best years they'd ever had as people were uh, forced to stay home and they started working on their houses and creating more of a home environment. They kind of went back to a slower lifestyle. Um, they started purchasing in those areas. And so most, most of the people that support us ha have done very well in Amarillo. We, we launched our magazine in the spring of 2021, which at that time in Amarillo, it felt like the city was emerging out of the pandemic that we were opening up. I mean, obviously we were wrong. That was before, you know, Omicron variant and, and all that stuff. But there was a lot of optimism that we heard and a lot of excitement that we were creating a new advertising vehicle. Uh, we, we kept encountering disappointment in how the, the local newspaper had declined in uh, the way that some of those sales relationships were going uh, with the newspaper and a general excitement. And, and this, I think, is, is also an Amarillo thing, a general excitement about a print advertising product. I mean, there's a larger story that everybody's moving digital. Everybody's just using social media to advertise. Nobody's printing in the newspaper. But that's still a desire, I think, of a lot of, of, of businesses here. They want to hold a tangible thing in their hands. They want their customers to hold a tangible thing in their hands. And so we found a lot of excitement that finally here is, is a print advertising medium that, that we as a business can feel proud of and can put our stuff in. Um, and the fact that we you know, packaged that with a lot of digital products, with a lot of, of other ideas, I, I think was even more exciting to them. After the break, we'll take a closer look at Amarillo and what makes it worthy of a quality, hyper-local publication. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. 
Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WACSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. I have lived in the Amarillo area since 1989. At the time, the population was about 157,000, according to the U.S. Census a year later. And here we are uh, a couple of years since the pandemic delayed census, and we're barely over 200,000. That's about a 1% growth rate, less than what a demographer would expect using the rate of natural growth. Some might say we're growing in spite of ourselves, but others would say we should and could be growing more. Worse yet, the whole panhandle is struggling and has grown even less during the last 30-plus years. In some regards, you might say that Amarillo is just stealing sheep, gaining population at the expense of the small towns in our West Virginia-sized region. What's your take on Amarillo's population and what's keeping us from growing faster? I, I think there's there's a little bit uh, of an element um, related to our growth rate that does not quite tell the whole story, or, or maybe the, the decline of our growth rate. I think the closure of the Air Force Base um, several decades ago stalled a lot of the momentum that Amarillo had. I think had that not happened, we would be a much bigger city at this point. And so I think a lot of people forget that when they think, why have we only grown this much? I, I think we're still catching up to a lot of uh, of the decline that happened there. But Number two, I think that steady growth has been laying a foundation for what's going to come in the next decade or two, because a lot of what I've heard, and and these have been conversations with city council and with business leaders who have said, once Amarillo hits that 200,000, then that starts to attract a new kind of business, a new kind of retailer, a new kind of, you know, corporate eyeball that has been waiting for us to, to reach a threshold. Now that we have reached that threshold, and you combine that with a lot of the economic stability that we have, a lot of the excitement in the business community, a lot of the resources that we have, whether that's wind energy or space to build or uh, a workforce, you know, an educated workforce, those become a magnet for a lot of the, the businesses and the institutions that cause growth. And we're starting to see the fruits of that with the veterinary school. Um, There's a lot of things being planned that have not been announced publicly yet that are very, very exciting and that are going to bring a lot of attention to this area. And I think a lot of it just depended on us hitting that 200,000 person threshold. Um, If we can continue that momentum, I think Amarillo is going to grow a lot faster than people expect over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, as long as we don't like, you know, run out of water or something like that. I mean, there's some there's some challenges to think of, but I think we've positioned ourselves for a lot of growth. I agree. And back to the Air Force base was such a discouragement. I think that culturally, people felt such failure losing that um, that it, it took decades to get over that loss. When I mentioned earlier that people apologize for Amarillo. 
It just, I think it made people down on Amarillo and it's taken time for some older leadership to kind of pass and younger people with a little bit more groundbreaking ideas who want to see more growth are moving in and changing the way that things have been. But I think we, we need to, we need that time to plan. Lots of Amarillo wasn't planned for growth. Uh, it's not e easy to navigate some areas of town. And so we, we need a little bit of time uh, to for infrastructure and roads and some planning before we hit that. So I'm, I'm fine with the growth rate other mm -hmm. than when I hear people uh, talk down about Amarillo. And I, I loved reading, uh, you know, Cacique coming here, um, how those owners said there's so much more to Amarillo than you think. We had no idea when they were looking at all those markets that they chose us because they did not expect what they found when they got here. I, I think when you see the decline, the, those years when the population declined, it's the result of the loss of a major industry. So it was the Air Force in the 60s. It was the oil and gas downturn in the 80s. And that's a reflection of a lack of economic diversity in Amarillo. Well, we're not an economic monoculture anymore. We're not entirely dependent on agriculture or on oil and gas or on the defense industry. Like those are three big things, but they're three of, you know, a couple of dozen major economic uh, stories that are taking place right now. And you can see that in Amazon. You can see that in places like Bucky's coming in here. Bucky's is not just a convenience store story. That's a story about a lot of different things, including economic development on the east side of Amarillo. And so the fact that the city leaders and the Amarillo EDC have very intentionally tried to diversify the local economy, uh, I, I think puts us in a place where we're not going to see that huge drop off because someone leaves or somebody shuts down. Uh, it, it helps, you know, kind of create the stability that it's important for a city to grow from. Uh, and and that's, that's something that's going to continue. I hope that 200,000 is the magic number. I was, I was digging into Amarillo growth rates uh, the other day, and I saw that in the 40s, uh, we grew by about 50% in one decade. But in the 1950s, we almost doubled. Those were the happy days in terms of growth rate. And then, of course, we knew what happened in 68 when the air base was uh, shuttered, and then we went into the, the slow growth era. And let's hope that now the trajectory takes off. And, and I don't want to I don't want to be too down on slow growth either, because when you have the rapid growth, then you end up with what Austin's experiencing now. And there's a diminishment of quality of life that happens there because there's too much construction. There's no place to live. The housing prices skyrocket. All these big things, you know, can can get in the way. And so there's something to be said for slow and steady. Um, because you don't become overwhelmed with the needs for infrastructure and the needs to build out sewer systems and, and all those things. And so I, I think if we can find sort of a happy medium between stagnation and Austin, you know, that, right. that we'll be in a good place. Well, hey, we've got one more interstate than Austin has. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot more space to work with at this point. Well, in spite of everything, you both have stayed, as we've discussed, I have stayed there's something inexplicably delicious about Amarillo that I still can't put my finger on, though. Any idea what that might be? I have a, a story that, that I like to tell. Um, Patrick Burns is a friend of mine. He's the, the owner, founder of Palace Coffee. And several years ago, the 
Amarillo Economic Development Corporation was um, part of a partnership with Inc. Magazine, and Inc. Magazine was was helping tell the story of Amarillo and attracting business here. And and they had an event at Palace uh, where a lot of the writers and editors and and the people at Inc. came and talked to some of the business leaders in Amarillo. And Patrick was talking to one of those people, and they said, okay, so you're the owner of Palace Coffee. Tell us about your business. He talked about the business. But that was just a little bit of the conversation. Then he talked about how he liked to perform at ALT, and he was in multiple plays a year, and how his kids were involved in that, and how Crystal was serving on the board at Emerald Little Theater, his wife, Crystal, and she was involved in all this stuff. And the people at Inc. were just like, what? I don't, like, they did not understand how someone who owned a business and had multiple locations and had as much of a, a market share as Palace did also had time to do these extracurricular things that were just fun family things and pursuing hobbies and doing all those things. They thought that was an incredible story. And they went back to Inc. Magazine and was like, we have to write about this. There are business owners who have a life outside their business. And that's such a surprise to me because, of course, like that's what we all want. And that's what we have here. And it shouldn't be like some crazy story. And it's not in Amarillo. But to outsiders, like that feels really weird. And I, I think that talks a lot about the ease that Michelle mentioned. It is easier to live here. It's easier to have a successful business here, but not have that business dominate every aspect of your life. And that's, that's something we're pursuing. Mm-hmm. You know, we we don't work on magazines 16 hours a day. No. Sometimes it feels like that toward the end, but mm-hmm. uh, we have a life outside of what we do. I, I agree, and I have a similar story uh, from a man who chose to come here and open a business. He purposefully chose Amarillo in research because of the convenience and then proceeded to tell me, you know, we all take it for granted, and so many of us do. Um, how quickly that he was able to find some place to live, how quickly he was able to get his utilities hooked up. He came from New York, and he said, all of this would have taken me three months. My family can walk. My children walk to school. They, we know our neighbors. Uh, they're not in a, in a high-rise apartment going up an elevator. We have parks. We have uh, so many conveniences uh, and so much ease here. And it, it was so refreshing. Even the guys... Uh, that we met that um, at North Heights Laundry, mm, yeah. also coming from um, from the Dallas area, Arlington was it? Yeah, they they said that they felt like Amarillo was Arlington plunked down in the middle of the Panhandle with no drive time, so much convenience. The people who genuinely care about each other, um, that family environment, they were so thrilled. They said, we are so excited to be here. And we loved that story, too. We talked to them in August, and they were raving about the weather. They loved it. They're like, <laughs> it's so dry here. It's amazing. So, Yeah, the lack of humidity and the evenings, that, that, that it actually cools down, and it's not humid. And, it was in the you know, 60s It's not 100 degrees at midnight and that kind of thing. Um, it's wonderful to constantly see the city from other people's eyes like that when you were born and raised here. Um, I, I love hearing that kind of feedback. People. I've noticed on my own, and I've heard many other people say this, that Amarillo is a mecca for good food. Yeah, we have the usual chain restaurants and all that, but we have an amazing variety of locally owned mom-and-pop restaurants that put this place off the charts. How did this happen? 
I think, again, because of the isolation and that independent panhandle spirit that if we want it, we have to do it for ourselves. And so there are, there are people that have either moved here or travel extensively um, to re refine their palate, and they want to bring that back to Amarillo and have the means to do so. So we, we have the corner of the market of the local dive uh, and food culture. What More so than anywhere, Lubbock does not have this culture. They do not care about this at all. They like chains. Um, I, I think that that fierce loyalty to people want to help local business owners, um, and they're a little bit averse to chains here. Um, you know, when when small panhandle towns try to compare themselves to big cities, I think in the past, um, you know, if we finally got a Macy's, we finally would have arrived. Or <laughs> if we, you know, if we if we only had a Krispy Kreme, we would finally arrive. And in Amarillo, people don't think like that for the most part. Um, they celebrate those locally owned businesses. And a lot of it's family uh, culture with Hispanic family culture. Very, think, very strong traditions. Yeah, I, I think the diversity of the Amarillo population is a story that we don't talk about enough. Um, it challenges some misconceptions that we are a very diverse city. And one of the benefits of that diversity is we have a lot of really good food here. And it's because, you know, you move here from another country, you come here as a refugee, you come here as an immigrant, you don't always have a lot of things, but you have your culture and you have the ability to cook. And um, the, the fact that we have ended up with so many different types of restaurants um, with such a diverse food culture. I mean, sometimes you have to go, you have to go out of your way a little bit to, to find it. Um, you have to get off I-40, uh, go to the boulevard. You could eat at a different place every day for months and months and months without repeating yourself. Um, that's, that's a testament to the diversity of a place uh, that, that is not often considered by people who think, oh, it's Texas Panhandle, it's all a bunch of, of white cowboys. Um, it's not true. You're so right about that ethnic diversity. Um, my daughter and her husband live and work in the Dallas area, and um, I had occasion this week to, uh, to visit with, with them, and, and my daughter was saying, you know, after a year in Dallas, I still can't find a good Thai restaurant. And I said, like, let's go. That's all we have in Emerald is good have. Thai restaurants. <laughs> right. And we still have some holes in the market. You know, there's, there's not a great Korean restaurant although we are getting two new Korean barbecue places because they looked at Amarillo from Denver and said, there's not one of these things here. We're going to put one here. The population can support it. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's a surprise. I, I think we're, we're, still, we're still growing in that regard. Like, I don't think we're finished. We're, we're going to continue getting some really good ethnic restaurants. Where do you see Amarillo going in the future? After all, you've, you've wagered your whole future on a publication dependent on at least a stable population. Are you bullish on Amarillo? Very. Yeah. I, th I think we have this conversation in 20 years. You would be saying, Jason and Michelle, did you expect Amarillo to grow as fast as it did? Um, and I, I think we'll all be surprised. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be surprised at how the city changes over the next few years. What kinds of businesses come here and what kinds of people those businesses bring. I think the pandemic has caused a real shift in how people look at their work and how people value 
the things in their lives that are important. And, and that's resulted in, you know, the great resignation and people retiring early or switching careers before they thought they would or rethinking, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? I want to do something else. And you're seeing a lot of migration away from the cities uh, and to places like Amarillo that have a little bit different quality of life, have a little bit different type of opportunity. Um, I, I think Amarillo is poised at just the right moment in time to capture some of that cultural movement uh, because of some of the groundwork that's been laid over the past 20 years. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm real bullish on Amarillo. And I, my hope would be uh, for a different kind of focus on ag, uh, just think, you know, things we've learned this year that have not been announced uh, publicly, uh, a return again to uh, things that young people's grandparents did that an honorable life you can build an honorable life in the ag industry and change the environment if that's what you want to do and make a difference in the world and then if we if we could capitalize on tourism with the fascination with western culture mm -hmm. right now um thanks to taylor sheridan there's there rather than amarillo being a stop through that it, it could turn into a destination if we there there are just a few things that we need to do to accomplish that, and my hope would be for those two areas. Yeah, I, I think we'll be looking back several years, and you know, we'll be like, remember when Amarillo was was just a place associated with agriculture, or with wind energy, or with Pantex and defense and helicopters? Those are great things. But in a few years, people will think about, you know, the film industry in Amarillo, or the biomedical production facilities in Amarillo. Um, they'll, they'll be thinking about, you know, the, the people who have moved here to remote work for Google or for Apple or, or for some of these big tech companies, because they, if they're working from home anyway, then why pay, you know, $3,000 a month for a tiny little apartment when you could pay $3,000 a month and get a giant barn dominium or something right. in Amarillo. Uh, and so we're going to see that story change a lot. Uh, I, as, as long as the infrastructure can sustain that, I think we're going to be real surprised with how we grow. And what about Amarillo as a retirement center? Are we far enough south to get the northerners? I mean, we still get more sunshine than Florida. They don't want to admit that, but we actually do. Um, but we get a little coal. We get a little bit of, you know, little reality check every couple weeks, it seems like, in the winter. And the wind does blow, but this has always struck me as a an ideal place to attract a certain type of retiree, someone who doesn't need sunny and 75 every day of the year. Well, I mean, that goes along with what do you value. Uh, every place is going to have some, some really positive elements and some negative elements. I mean, Phoenix is great if you like sunshine. It's not great if you don't like 120 degree days. You know, Florida is great if you like sunshine. It's not great if you don't like hurricanes. I mean, there are going to be things like that. And so I think you're right that Amarillo is, is really, I think, underappreciated as a retirement destination because we've got the sunshine, because we've got an easy standard of living, because you can live here for cheap. Um, if you like the mountains, then we're four hours away from the mountains without the prices of living in Santa Fe or the prices of living in Colorado Springs or Denver. Um, if, if you like big cities, we're four hours away from some big cities that have the stuff that Oklahoma City's got or that Albuquerque has. Um, I, I think there's a lot that Amarillo has to offer to someone who wants to retire and still be close to stuff, still have four seasons, 
you know, still have some interesting things to do locally, uh, but not have the headaches of crazy heat or hurricanes or humidity or traffic. I mean, there are some downfalls. The wind is not great all right. the time. <laughs> well, that's that's our hurricane. That's our 120 degree days. You got to deal with some wind. But the rest of the stuff is great. I know when I interviewed here back in 88, um, a realtor was giving me the the usual pitch, you know, the warm days, cool nights, and we're only six hours away from the mountains or Dallas. That was when the speed limit was only 55. But my thinking was, I can take the warm days, cool nights, but six hours? Are you insane? And now it's just routine. I just get in the van and go, and it's not a problem. Thankfully, we got 75-mile-an-hour speed limits. That makes it better. That helps. But at the same time, I don't think about that, that, that big distance because having grown up in Chicago, six hours, I could be in southern Kentucky in that amount of time. Here, six hours, I'm still in Texas, only in the middle, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's something that we do take for granted is that you know a four-hour drive is not a big deal because we're so used to going to Dallas, so used to going to um, to some big city for a concert or something like that. And, and you balance out that four-hour drive that we have to do with at least I'm not sitting in my car for an hour and a half a day, uh, and it, it makes it kind of all shake out. When we come back, we'll take a look at the future of media. The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Print media have taken things on the chin the last decade. The college newspaper of which I was once editor is now all digital. The same is true of the Prairie here at WT, and what's a yearbook, anyway? It seems that everyone has forgotten what paper and ink are, and no one is interested in reading, much less saving, these legacy media vehicles. While magazines have thus far been able to withstand all of the technological changes and still been able to make it far into the 21st century, what are your thoughts for print media? Do you think that printed magazines, a true vestige of the past, will make it intact into the future, and why? I do. I don't, I don't know how far into the future, honestly. Uh, but people in Amarillo print still works. People like to have a tangible product in their hands that they can um, sit with and keep. I think that's true. I think uh, an unappreciated part of the story of the decline of print media was the inflexibility of a lot of the larger media companies that you had these enormous newspapers with, you know, a staff of 
150 people, all based on a print product. And when the demand for that print product began to dry up, um, they they weren't nimble enough to get into digital. They didn't understand digital. They weren't nimble enough to try new things and to experiment and to find ways to supplement some of what was lost with print. Um, we're going into this with our eyes wide open, knowing that print is here. We think it works locally. We don't know how long it's going to last. Um, but it's not the only thing we do. And because we are flexible, we've got the ability to pivot and to try new things, like Michelle said, and to have digital offerings, to have unique community partnerships, to have access to digital storytelling, whether it's podcasting, whether it's video, whether it's stuff on our website, whether it's social media. Um, we're not starting from this this print-based obesity that prevents us from doing the other things well. Uh, we're, we're doing everything, I think, at once. Uh, and that allows us to shift our strengths around to where we, number one, can accomplish our goals, and number two, can continue to make enough revenue to keep this project going. Um, and so I, I, we're not under any illusions that we're going to still be producing a print magazine in 60 years. Um, hopefully, you know, modern medicine will help us live another 60 years. I'm, I'm digging into that. But uh, it's, it, it's, legacy media had some challenges that they weren't prepared to address when the culture started to change. That and how inauthentic most of those corporate organizations are. It, it becomes more about making a buck in a market um, rather than telling the stories of the people, uh, being dedicated to the community. So we, we offer something that big corporate newspapers cannot in that we love this town and I see it as a service to some degree what we do. There's more to it than just revenue for us. Um, the inability to pivot was tied to that, um, that inauthenticity, the inability to uh, try something that would actually work in a specific market rather than launching products across the board that work in bigger markets or everywhere. So this is just the formula that we use, and we don't do that, and we have no plans to do that. Um, we, we are able to launch things based on the market and a, a client's needs. Uh, specifically for them because we really do want to help local businesses build their businesses here. It's it's more than just making a buck. Yeah, we're, we're coming from the mindset that we believe local media is a public good. It's as important as roads and highways and representation at City Hall and all those different things, that being able to tell the story of a place is an important part of helping that place know who it is and where it's going. And so... Yes, we want to make enough money to keep telling that story, but we're not driven by profit. If we were driven by profit, we would have chosen <laughs> a different business model. You know, We would have chosen a different industry, uh, to be honest. And so starting from it, I think from the right place, puts us in a position to where every decision we make does not have to be a financial decision. Sometimes it's a decision that either brings us fulfillment or that we think is good for the city we live in, for our readers, for our advertisers. You know, and, and watching in the past, um, watching newspapers try to be something that they weren't, uh, just kind of grasping at straws, uh, trying, to, trying to be TV, trying to be different things that it just doesn't work. Um, I feel like the two of us will be able to and have been able to um, create 
different types of media that are authentically Amarillo. Do you ever see yourself going toward a subscription-based online platform, meaning like an app, for example? We stream everything these days, whether it's the games we play or our music and, and our movies and TV shows. Do you ever see like a Brick and Elm app in which people pay money? Maybe you use a, a, a freemium model. You get a little bit for nothing, but you pay more for others. But you can have fresh content on it all the time as opposed to a bi-monthly print publication, which keeps you from ever really putting in very much timely information. I think one of the ways that, that we've gotten around that is with our weekly uh, email newsletter, uh, which is called Brickly, which goes out to several thousand people in Amarillo on a weekly basis. And that allows us to tell the, um, the more frequent types of stories and, and news events and openings and, and things like that that are happening that are not timely, you know, when our next magazine comes out in a couple months. And so we, we did realize that that was a limitation, and we designed something to kind of uh, balance that out. As, as far as, you know, streaming or uh, paywalls or, you know, freemium, premium, all those kinds of things, um, we're in a position now where we are flexible to what comes and to what our subscribers, our readers, our advertisers want. And we have the ability to pivot pretty quickly to try something, see if it works, without banking our entire business on it, on its failure or its success. And so I, I'm, I'm not willing to say, oh, we will never do something like that, because who knows what we're going to be doing in eight or 10 years? Who knows what kind of technology will be available? Um, I am willing to say that we will always be willing to experiment and to try something that is not just beneficial for us, but is beneficial for our audience. And um, whatever that looks like, um, you know, if, if we can try it, and if we can do an experiment and see if it's successful, then cool, that'll be fun. Um, I, don't th I don't think we have to, uh, to say anything is off limits. We will never do that kind of thing, because we don't know how technology is gonna change. We don't know how storytelling is gonna change. Uh, we, you know, Texas Monthly 10 years ago did not think that podcasts would be a big part of its business model. It is now. And uh, we're in a position where we can do something like that, too, if we want to, if, if we have the capacity for it. So to me, all that is more a question of should we. Um, it's not should we. It's like, can we? Do, do we have the personnel? Do we have the stories to tell? Do we have a reason to do it? If we don't have a good reason to do it, I don't want to do stuff just because just we think we're supposed to. Right. Our guests today have been Michelle McCaffrey and Jason Boyette, co-publishers and founders of Brick and Elm Magazine. Give us your best shot. The best decisions you make are not often the ones that you plan for. It's what happens on the detours. And for both of us, this was a detour, and we're enjoying it. I kind of see this as also a, th a third, fourth, and fifth act mm -hmm. for us, um, and just excited to be able to um, take a, a challenge and grow so quickly and, and have a market that supports us. So I, I think not pigeonholing yourself and not, you know, losing, losing one long-term occupation doesn't have to mean the death of the thing that you love. 
been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.